Well, thank you very much, brother, for reading, and uh, thank you for your uh, warm welcome, and I've thoroughly enjoyed being here. Uh, and uh, I'm already a Presbyterian, just I've added a bit to it, uh, what's called Episcopacy, but it's much the same. Uh, so there we are. Uh, now, as you, uh, so I think I may have mentioned, I went to Scots College. I'm a, uh, I'm sort of, I, I know about it, but I'm an Anglican. <laughs> there we are. But it's been great fun to be with you. I've enjoyed it so much, and the privilege of meeting a number of you has been uh, terrific. So thank you very much indeed. I've been praying for us uh, that as we hear God's word, his hand of blessing will indeed rest upon us this day. So let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, it will penetrate the ignorance and darkness of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may learn the truth, respond with faith, and live out a life of obedience. For Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, um, uh, we have been and are still going on a remarkable journey. Uh, I'm not all that interested in going on cruises, but a cruise I would like to do is a cruise through Europe uh, along the Great River, the Rhine, and just stopping at various places. And, and it, it just strikes me as being a terrific thing that I would like to do. I believe the food on board is excellent as well. So all, all good. Uh, so you start and you end, it's uh, wonderful stops along the way, and you end in a wonderful destination. Well, you have started a great journey. You have started uh, in uh, one of the most extraordinary books ever written, the Epistle of the Romans, uh, and you have been journeying along, and uh, I've had the privilege of journeying with you uh, from uh, chapter uh, 2, or part of chapter 2 through to today, chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, and uh, this is a, a great uh, journey to be on. It's supremely important to grasp the essence of the Christian message, which can be summarized in 1, verses 16 and 17. If you go back there, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is his sort of topic sentence. It's his word about what he's going to be writing about. And it is, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness, the justice of God is revealed, a justice which is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So there we are. That's the sort of theme of Romans. And you have been traveling along uh, and um, and will continue to do so, I believe. It's excellent. So it's a great journey, and I'm really, really uh, pleased that you're doing it. Mind you, two weeks ago when I began, I did indicate to you that a particular landing place was ahead of us, and it was not a very happy one. Uh, it was, on the contrary, one that was rather devastating. And uh, just as I started there, so I'm going to return there and start there again and trace our footsteps back uh, along this journey in just a moment. Before I do, I want to raise the issue with you just very briefly about your hopes and your hope. Uh, I guess particularly uh, the younger you are, the more you have hopes, ambitions, ideas about what the future will be. Uh, what is your hope? And one of the most 
uh, difficult and painful things for you to hear from anyone, but particularly from your parents or teachers, is that you are hopeless. Now, that's not quite the same thing. Uh, to have hopes is one thing. To be hopeless is another thing. It's a, it's a, a, a verdict on your abilities. Uh, one of the uh, most uh, uh, memorable moments in my own school career at Scots College uh, was during uh, our um, year eight, I think it was, year nine, uh, when we had a French teacher. He was that tall. Uh, he was French. Poor man, fancy teaching French to Australian boys. <laughs> he must have committed some terrible crime. Uh, his name was Monsieur Wilkie, and I can't uh, pronounce things as he did, but one day he said to me, Jensen, stand up, stand up. So I stood up, and he said, Where did your ancestors come from, Jensen? And I said, From Denmark, Monsieur Wilkie. He said, You will never speak French. And I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I proceeded to fail. Uh, he, he decreed that I was hopeless, and all my hopes died. I had hopes of speaking French, but they died because the decree over my head was hopeless, and not just hopeless, but genetically hopeless, apparently. <laughs> apparently, the Danes are no good at speaking French, according to Monsieur Wilkie. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, hopeless. Now, maybe that word has been spoken over you, too. Uh, it may be that um, you, your parents, uh, have not been all that helpful, or your friends, your teachers, uh, and you are carrying the scar of hopelessness, uh, and yet you also have hopes. Well, this landing place we're about to come to, I'm sorry to tell you this, is hopeless and destroys all your hopes. So that's what an exciting way to begin. So there we are. What is this landing place I'm talking about? Well, it's chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. And once again, I always think it's always good to work backwards. So we're going to be working backwards today as we look at the passage 3, verses 1 to 20. We're going to finish at the end. We're going to start at the end. Why not? Uh, it's always nice to know where you're going. I think I may have mentioned to you whenever I read a novel, I read the last chapter first to see if I want to go through the whole experience. Uh, if it wends well, then I'm prepared to do it. But anyhow, there we are. Well, this does not end well. Have a look at 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and we may think, oh, good, that's the Jewish people who had the law. no so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. It's not ethnic, it's not Jewish, it is every human being may be held accountable to God. You either have the law in its written form or you have the law written on your heart, we've discovered this already, and you do not keep the law. So every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The law is a great friend. Uh, without laws, where would we be? Uh, the Ten Commandments are sort of an epitome of law. They're just a wonderful set of principles uh, of law. We need the law. We need other people to be restrained by the law. The law is friendly, and it's also one of your worst enemies because it not only gives you hope, but it also slays you at the same time. Whether you are a Jew or, a not, or not, you are under the law, both for direction in life and for judgment when you get to the end. 
How have you scored? What's your results? <laughs> my father once took uh, my younger brother Philip and uh, a friend of his into uh, the university. In those days, you, the, your results at the end of the year were posted on the notice board at the university, and he took them in uh, when the results were published at midnight. So he went in there, and they went across the street full of... And he said he has ne he told me he'd never seen a more dejected couple coming back. They came back like this because they had seen their results, and they were hopeless. That was the verdict. That which might have helped them had brought them down because they just simply failed. Look at the uh, look at it says here. The whole world held up. Every mouth silenced. You know, it's a courtroom we're seeing here, and. You are on trial, the evidence has been presented, you're asked to defend yourself, and you have nothing to say because you can't defend yourself. When your life is compared to the law of God, you cannot defend yourself because you have nothing to say which could persuade anyone that you have kept the law of God. Therefore, he says, uh, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, which is what we need. We need acquittal. We need justification. We need to be justified. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That is not a route that is open to you by being goody, by working hard, by being, you know, the best in your class. And I'm going to hit that hit that HSC, I'm going to hit that honours degree, I'm going to do this. No, in life, no matter how hard you work, no matter what good works you throw up to God as, as sort of an exoneration, the law will still bring you down because your good works are insufficient. Insufficient. No one will ever be saved by their sheer goodness. Rather, the law makes you conscious of your sin. You might impress others. Others may think you're a good person, but inwardly you're not. You know that. Inwardly, there are things like greed and lust and ambition. There are longing for things you should not be longing for. There's uh, anger at others. All sorts of things go on in the human heart. And that's the law. It's like a great doctor who discovers these things and declares, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. You've had it. It's a fearful place to be. And fearful, all the more fearful, because you know the thing that we the thing that we long for most, you may be an introvert, but this is still true of you, is relationships. It's very, very difficult to live without. Have you ever been in a situation, I don't know, where people have ignored you, where people you know, you may be in a workplace and nobody takes any notice of you. You may be at home and there is silence where you might have expected speech, where people ignore you or you are separated from them. It's like hell. And it is hell. Because in the end, hell is the destination of those who have not who have not fixed this problem of the law, they've not received the healing which they need. And hell is their choice 
of their separation from the living God who has made them forever and ever. It's hell. The whole world will be held accountable to God, it says, and you won't be able to impress God with your good works. Then what's the evidence for this? Uh, well, he, uh, he, just before this, as you say, uh, 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 let me remind you, I'm working backwards here. Um, just before this, he has uh, given the evidence from the Bible. What shall we conclude then, he says in verse 9, do we have any advantage? Do we Jews have any advantage because we have the law? He says, not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that's the rest of us, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. And uh, our translation here rightly says under the power of sin. Jesus once said, if you sin, you're a slave. You're an inveterate sinner. You are a slave to sin. You might think it's freedom. You sin because that's your way of freedom. But in fact, that freedom becomes addictive. And you are a slave to sin. And he says, I have made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike. There's a, later on, he speaks with extraordinary power. He says, the good I would, I cannot do. And the evil I do not want to do is what I do. And there he speaks from the depth of his own heart into the depth of your heart as well. We are gripped by an inability to do the right, to think the right, to say the right. And that's who we are. We're under the power of sin. And then he uh, gives a whole list of quotations here from the Psalms, in particular taken from the Psalms. He could have moved to other places, but he's taken, gone to the Psalms to give the biblical verdict, the biblical verdict on human life, which is why he finishes up the whole world is held accountable to God. Um, this is forceful evidence uh, it first of all tells us about the universal reach of sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Uh, <laughs> all have sinned, and we are all under the power of sin. Two words, all and under. And he turns uh, to the evidence for the evidence from the one who knows, namely God in the Bible, using the Psalms to describe humanity without God. Notice, first of all, he begins with a, a fundamental crime. He begins and ends with the same fundamental crime. Namely, there is no one understands, there is no one who seeks God. And then down at the end, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Our fundamental problem is our, is our relationship or non-relationship with the one living God who has made all things. That's our problem. That is our fundamental problem as human beings and the evidence of, and, and the fruit of that is all around us. And then uh, he goes on with, uh, he begins and ends with the fundamental crime. It involves all humans. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, etc., etc. And he illustrates the basic sin with common sins. Uh, for example, he takes the voice, the throat, the, 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 uh, what we say to each other. Look at verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, etc., etc. It is how we speak to each other which, and speak of each other in our judgment of each other, in the lies we tell each other, in the way in which we curse each other, which is evidence just one evidence 
of the cancerous growth that we all bear named sin. We lack compassion for our neighbour. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark our ways. Well, uh, you don't have to go very far in your human life to recognise that uh, this is true. It doesn't mean it's the whole truth. There are good things as well. But the good is overwhelmed by the evil. And this is why. Well, he has appealed to the Bible. And in uh, the next chapter, the next paragraph, going backwards again, he tells us about this Bible. He tells us, in, uh, if you go now to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 following, what advantage is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? He's just said there's no value in circumcision unless it's the circumcision of the heart, namely repentance, which is what we talked about last week. What value is there in having circumcision if, it, if, if the outward circumcision is of no value? He says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted. Now look at this carefully. Verse 2, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God, with the oracles of God. You see, in quoting the Psalms and, and that long list of that, the, the Psalms' verdict on humanity, what gives the list its power is that it wasn't just the words of King David or someone like this who might have written the Psalms. These words are the words of God himself. These are his verdict. And look at why, how he describes the, uh, the Bible here. He speaks of it as the very oracles or the very words of God. Yes, through human words, that's true. In the way in which God has written the Bible, he takes human beings, prophets and others, and he speaks through them. But it is his word which is spoken. And as we look at the Bible, as we understand the Bible, we see that um, the reason that he has given us his word is obvious. That is to say, Originally, if you go back now to chapter 1, you'll see that there was a revelation of God in the world that's been made and so forth. But we human beings have suppressed the knowledge of God. We don't want to know this God, so we've suppressed the knowledge of God. That was his revelation. And so God chose his special people, one people out of all the rest, namely the Jews. He saved them from Egypt in accordance with his promises and then he gave them words. So yes, there's a revelation of God in the world around us, but now there's a revelation of God all the more suitable for human beings because words are so important to us, not silence, but words. And so God speaks to us in words of promise and command. These are the oracles or the words of God. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit using human authors, but inspired by the, these are the voice of the Holy Spirit is here in the Bible. You want to know what the Holy Spirit says? Some people think, oh, I've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. That means listening to vague voices in my head, which can't tell whether it's my voice or the Spirit's voice. You don't need that. The Bible is the word of the Spirit of God. And I love the Bible because it's the same word for us all. 
Whatever the Bible says to you, it says to me as well. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It has God's authority all over it. There's no book like it. When the king was crowned the other day, uh, uh, he was given a Bible. This is the most treasured possession in the world. It is the very oracles of God. That's right. It's unique. There's no book like it. It is the word of the living God, inspired, authoritative, clear. You don't need me to explain it to you. Sure, it helps a bit. It's very nice that you come and we gather together and there may be things... But I hope you have a Bible at home and I hope you read the Bible frequently, constantly, daily because the Bible is for you. It's not just for experts, not just for priests or presbyters. It is for the ordinary person. The Bible is clear. Of course, we can all help each other understand it more. That's fine. But its message is clear. It is relational, it's words, and it is infallible. You can trust it completely. These are the oracles of God. Inspired, authoritative, clear, relational, and infallible. Absolutely trustworthy. And the Jews were chosen not because they were special, particular, wonderful people or something like this. They were chosen by God, out of his love and mercy, and they were given the word of God for the sake of the rest of us. And they were saved from Egypt and told to live by the Bible. Well, when Paul says this in this passage, he gets a bit of pushback. Arguments come his way, and we can see what they are here. Uh, here are the arguments, verses uh, Five and uh, five and six, or five to eight. But if our unrighteousness, I'm sorry. No, verse three. Following. What if some of what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness, this is the Jews, nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But, and here's someone speaking back to Paul here, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Uh, is God using sin to glorify himself, in other words? Is he sort of making himself a great God using human sin and therefore he's in favor of human sin? It's that sort of argument. Are we saying that God is unjust and bringing his wrath upon us? I am using human arguments. This is a sort of nonsense that you might hear around the place. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? If God is somehow himself tainted by sin, how could he be the judge? Which he is. He goes on, someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some have slanderously said, let us do evil that good may result? Uh, look, the best way of thinking about it, or not the best, but a way of thinking about it, I think, is if you if you were the parent of a child who was particularly cluey, and they said to you, uh, look, why don't I keep being a bad boy 
a wicked child because the more I am a wicked child, the more it shows how what a good disciplinarian you are, what a good person you are compared to me. So perhaps the more I behave badly, the more it glorifies you. Well, Paul doesn't even bother to refute this. He just says it's stupid. And it is stupid, isn't it? It doesn't glorify the parent if the child is misbehaving. But God in his mercy still remains absolutely righteous and can and does take human sin and turns it for good in due course in his own way, as we shall see. These are mere argumentative questions. Your condemnation, he says, is just, and the word of God, the word of God condemns you. Is there any evidence for this? Let's turn to what I've called here the factual proof. Uh, is there any evidence that God's word is speaking the truth here? Well, you don't need evidence. If God speaks, then that's enough. But on the other hand, in the chapters before, I'm now thinking back to your long journey again, going right back to chapter 1, Paul has been talking about the way in which the world in which we live gives evidence all the time of the truth of God's word because of the complete moral failure and collapse of human beings. God's word says that human beings are sinful and you personally know it. Oh, by the way, have you got your keys? Oh, you didn't leave them at home, did you? You didn't just leave them on the car. Did you, did you get your phone? Is your phone just out there somewhere and your car's, your car's not locked? Or did you carefully take your phone out of the car to make sure that nobody looked in and locked your car? Did you lock your car? Did you lock your house this morning? What are you assuming about your neighbours? Would you be assuming by any means that human beings are sinful? That perhaps if we do see a phone lying in there and the car's unlocked, we might nick it? Can I say nick? Is that a word that your generation knows? <laughs> Pinch it? Is that another word that you know? Oh, good. He's getting a bit old, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Again and again, we don't think about it because we just habitually do this, but again and again we protect ourselves against sin from other people because we know that other people are sinful and we cannot trust them or we can trust them to do the wrong thing. You keep an eye on what's said about you in social media because you know that some people are going to say nasty things about you that are not true. You want to know about this. In fact, social media, if you want to know about human sinfulness, social media would be one of those, wouldn't it? One of those places where human, the cesspool of human sin is on full view. And the apostle here is telling us, yes, that's what, that's what human, when human beings suppress the truth about the knowledge of God, you can see the sin in the world around you. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he tells us, The wrath of God is revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, he says. In verse 23, he tells us, as a result, we don't become non-religious, we, we create false gods. Uh, you may not worship a little image at home or something like this, but you worship, you worship money, 
you worship honor, you worship position, you will worship because you are a worshiping being. You will serve that which attracts you. And you will love the God you have created because it's the God you want who makes you feel good, not the true God who you have run away from. We create false gods. In verse 24, he says, we abandon uh, good order, the good order of God's word, for slavery in the guise of freedom. God gave them the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He could be talking about contemporary Western world, at least, with the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, which has brought uh, the most terrible consequences in family life and in personal life is absolutely he could be talking about that right here that's what happens when human beings suppress the knowledge of God and then in, uh, he gives a description of humanity and who's to deny it in verses 29 following they have a depraved mind so they do not do what ought to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, etc., etc. It's true. It's us. Well, it's not you personally, of course. It's just the people you work with. I know that. Yes, yes. That's a joke. You bring sin to the office as well as they do. Not just outwardly but inwardly as well but there are always good people aren't there uh, one of the interesting features of our life uh, in the 21st century is the absolute moralism of it all uh, you know no I won't mention any names but uh, there are certain certain media things and they're always on the what we used to call on the high horse, always superior, always saying to us, tut, tut, you naughty people, you should be doing this, and always trying to convince us that we're doing the wrong thing and so forth. It's very, very what I'd call moralistic. They believe that they're the good guys. And the Jews were a bit like that. They had the law, and they tut-tutted other people. They believed they had God on their side. God said to them, no, you don't. You think you have the law. You, well, you do. You think you keep the law, but you don't. You're just as sinful as the people you are criticizing. And I think we can see that very often too when we are being told that we're naughty people and we look at the people who are telling us and say, come, come, come. Really? We've all got to be... Anyhow, I don't... No, 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 I'm, nope. I'm not going to criticise. Okay. So even when we're exhibiting a moralism and being wonderful people, in fact, that is not true. We're hypocrites. And so we come back to the end of our trip. Go back now to 3, verses 19 to 20, what I call the flaming judgment. 
He's spoken in 2 verse 5 of the wrath of God. He's spoken in 2 verse 29 of the, uh, uh, of the way in which uh, we are uh, all guilty before God. And now he tells us that there is no Jew or Gentile. Now, every mouth is silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. No one is righteous in God's sight. A little later, he sums it up in chapter 3, verse 23, in a famous verse, which I hope is on your list of verses you know. Chapter 3, verse 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. Judgment, in other words. Hell. The judgment on sin. The moralistic will be judged, even as they judge others. The inner person is just as sinful as the outer person. You'll be judged on your heart, on the things you thought, on the words you said, the judgments you passed on others. And God's judgment is inescapable. What hope do you have? Uh, true. What hope do you have? <laughs> if Monsieur Wilkie could cut my French career with one word, you'll never speak French. What God's word does here is drain your hopes. You are not a good person. You are not a good enough person. I am able to say that to every person in this room. God's word says it, and human experience confirms it. You are not good enough. You have no hope. It is as if mum has said to you, you're hopeless, and you carry that scar with you. We have fallen short of our own hopes and we've fallen short of the hopes we ought to have. And the trouble is, God has got himself into a hole, excuse me, speaking like this, God has got himself into a hole and he can't get out of it because God says he is completely judged, he is completely just. He is the judge of all the earth and he is just and you can't, you can't twist the justice of God. He is completely just. And yet he has made us and he says he loves us. But how can his justice, how can his justice be of any use to the creatures that he says he loves? Because his justice will condemn them. All the world will be silent before the God who is just, and we don't want him to be anything else but just. How is there any hope at all? And so we come to possibly the most important paragraph ever written, which is next week's sermon. <laughs> what did you think it was this week? No. A great, uh, a great uh, New Testament scholar called Leon Morris, who is the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne years ago, 
Um, he has passed away now. He was a great New Testament scholar. And in one of his books on the Epistle to the Romans, he said that what now follows in chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is possibly the most important paragraph ever written where we find that the absolute impossibility becomes a possibility. Where the God of justice remains just while saving his hopeless people. Where at long last, no matter what your mother said to you, you discover you're not hopeless. No matter what you've said to yourself about your own guilt and shame, it's not the last word that God has the last word and that he loves you. And has given his son for you. And you'll see that in a miracle, well, a miracle, a miracle, miracle, God has somehow remained just and yet justified those who have been sinful. Well, that's next week. So you'd better be here to hear the most. Are you going to be expounding this? Someone else, you've passed it on to someone else. Well, you are such a gracious person. For next week, the most important paragraph ever written. You know, there's something interesting about this building, isn't there? Don't look at me, look straight ahead. What do you see? It's, here it is. But what, in a sense, transforms this building, and you know what sort of building it is, is the way that this has very, very cleverly turned itself into the cross. And the very heart of the most important paragraph ever written is the cross of Jesus. And that's our hope. And dear brothers and sisters, I have no other hope. I'm not a good man. I'm a wicked sinner. And my only hope is Jesus and his death for me on the cross. Make sure you're here next week to hear how this is true. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is true, which is infallible, which is clear, which is authoritative, which is inspired by your Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that it speaks the truth about us in a way that others don't and tells us about our wickedness and our failures. Thank you that it speaks the truth. But thank you too, Heavenly Father, that while it destroys our hopes, it gives us the greatest hope and fills our heart with hope. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we may turn to cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ and always be found in him our Saviour and our Lord and we ask this for Jesus sake Amen